Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Network Collective. We are here at the Interop ITX conference in Las Vegas, and we are sitting down with Michael Keough to talk about SRE. So settle in, get comfortable, we're about to get started. So yeah, we're here with uh, Michael Keough. Michael, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what it is that you do? Thanks, Jordan. So my name is Michael Keir. I'm a staff site reliability engineer at LinkedIn. So on a day-to-day -day basis, I work on helping automate um, our platform, how to better monitor it, and also I help drive major incident response at LinkedIn. So I mean, we've heard about SRE quite a bit the past few years, um, but I don't know that everyone has a really solid understanding of what that means. So do you mind like just taking a minute to step through like, what are some of the foundational components of SRE? Sure, so maybe if you start with the, the role of mission, um, the way I personally see it is helping uh, product and engineering win, um, work together from an operation standpoint. So to me, that means helping engineers be successful, helping product teams get their product out there to, uh, out there to the users, and making that experience for the end user as reliable as possible and as seamless as possible. And a lot of that is done through just standard operations. So SREs are generally uh, have strong Unix foundations. They have coding backgrounds. Uh, they also have strong concepts of architecture and network engineering. So they kind of sit in the middle. Uh, yeah, they definitely sit in the middle. They have a, um, a very multifaceted uh, skill set. And um, having a little bit of everything allows them to see the global picture a little bit better. Would you consider it the evolution of the full stack engineer kind of concept that we were hearing about a few years ago? Yeah, so I've actually spoken recently with Scott Lowe about this. Um, full stack engineer, um, I think, more pertains to the different layers of the software stack, so from front end to back end development, whereas SRE's just looking at the same sort of concepts but on the operations standpoint. Hmm. Uh, so you're here talking at Interop this week. Uh, so what is it? What is it that you're presenting on this week? So uh, on Wednesday, I'll be giving a presentation about the next wave of reliability engineering. So looking at where we started, some of the concepts behind uh, SRE, and where we'll be going in the future. And one of the key aspects I'll be looking at is the evolution of the network engineer uh, and talking about uh, what I believe will come to fruition in a couple of years as a industry adoption of uh, network reliability engineering, where we evolve from sort of single facet engineers that are strictly uh, managing the network, and we start to incorporate some of the uh, SRE or DevOps principles of continuous integration, um, more automated monitoring, better use of monitoring, finally evolving out of SNMP, um, and sort of getting ourselves to the uh, standpoint where the network um, is closer to being like an application in the network. It's something that we can manage, it's something that we can deploy, it's something we can automate. I mean, so we've been talking about this for a while as an industry generally. I mean, I, I think that... Getting away from SNMP? Well, well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I guess that. But I mean, just, just generally the idea of you know, treating a network holistically, kind of taking a programmatic approach, yeah, yeah, systemically. Right. Um, 
And I, you know, <laughs> some people are like all in on this idea that this is where everybody should be going. Some people say, well, that's great for the web scalers, but it's not great for the enterprise. Or where do, where do you think this fits? Do you think this is a universal thing that people are going to go to? Or so for the hyperscalers, I think most of them have gone there already. Sure. Um, like there hasn't been. Um, a large industry adoption or anything really through the IETF that sort of driven something holistically. So the hyperscalers, you know, had to go there, um, and they did. Um, but you know, net, uh, people, the size of the network is still increasing. Like the digital uh, economy is still uh, increasing. One good comparison to probably make is uh, just going back and looking at server operations. Like 15 to 20 years ago, things like Puppet, like Ansible, like Salt, they didn't exist. And as people's infrastructure grew, there needed to be you know, some level of automation there, right? Uh, and now, you know, if you go and look at you know, a rack of infrastructure, you have you know, 30, 48 uh, servers in a rack, where and then you might only have one switch. Um, so you know the scale required for network automation hasn't quite been there. Like you've got like this forty-eight to one ratio of servers to switches, but we are eventually getting there. Where you know once you start getting over you know maybe 30, 40 devices, you probably should be looking at some sort of um, automation around that. Um, and it's sort of like how much you buy in does depend on your scale. So obviously you know the hyperscalers go you know to the extreme and implement everything. But you know, for um, for smaller companies, you know, once you get past you know maybe two, three dozen devices, uh, there does become a need to sort of be able to manage configuration. Um, I, I still think that you know once you get uh, past a small level of complexity, monitoring does need to be better than just SNMP. Um, so no it, love it for does SNMP, depend. Huh? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, like it, it did its job well for you know it did what it was for required like to do years, for, right? uh, for a yeah. long time. Um, <laughs> But you know, we do need to get more towards uh, streaming uh, telemetry. We do need to get to uh, ways of programming our devices that aren't through you know some hacked up you know Perl script or you know uh, manipulating uh, SNMP OIDs to sort of push configuration. So the other thing I would say about what you're saying there is that a lot of times the enterprise engineer or the engineer out in uh, an operator, the air enterprise, quotes, yes, quotes. the air quotes, <laughs> enterprise engineer. The, the engineer out in an operator who is not focused on using the network to make money, because that's really the more appropriate way of saying enterprise in my mind, is that they don't tend to, they wait or they tend to think that these things are too difficult, too complex, too hard, too far out there, but the reality is, when places like LinkedIn and places like Facebook and Microsoft build these tools, these tools are not hidden. They're open source. And, and, and we talk about them at conferences, right? We come up to conferences and we talk about this stuff. And so I think part of what has to happen is that enterprise, enterprise customers or, or people who are just out there at the edge of the network need to start looking at these tools and saying, what can I glom onto? What can I use out of this? I don't have to use everything, but I can use some of this. And by using some of this, I can make my life a lot easier. And when you talk about scale, I think the thing is, is it drives the scale requirement down. As other people blaze the trail, as other people cut the trail through this forest or through this wilderness of trying to do network management at scale, they're actually making pathways that other people can use at a smaller scale over time. Well, I mean, part of the, part of the question on this is you know, the value that it actually provides versus yeah. the effort that it takes to get there. Right, yes. Uh, and so you know, I think, I think the, the value is obvious at a very large scale. 
And I think that when you talk when we talk about scale, like it was, what we're really talking about is the value of going through this process. Because I think even at five switches or whatever, yeah, right. Right, there's value in being able to, to treat that systemically. Yep. But the effort to create the programmatic approach around it, it might be more effort than what the value actually yeah, provides. So I think over time, uh, we'll see that value or effort required go down as right. you know, more That's tools what, right. become available, right? Um, but part of it is just looking at you know, what you're trying to get out of it. So for example, like when I was in uh, college, I had a, uh, like a physical four-core mach uh, machine that I had VMs on it. And I was playing around, trying to learn, et cetera. And I had Puppet to go and you know, build and those, destroy those VMs because I had enough churn, right? Yeah. I didn't need all the nice um, you know, reporting functions of Puppet. All I needed is to have a box that you know, was roughly set up in the way that I wanted. So if you go and translate that to the network, you know, maybe you just want a base configuration with um, you know, your DNS settings, your SNMP, community strings. Maybe um, some base layer, like if you're running a sort of access network or a campus network, you want your uh, your access switches, access port switches to look something similar. You don't need, you know, everything like continuous integration and deployment, etc. Um, but you can sort of pick out those small pieces where you can get, um, you know, direct value very quickly. Well, I think one thing that's important. Um, I think sometimes people believe they need permission to go and do these sorts of things. There is nothing stopping you from downloading VirtualBox and, and from getting a book and going online and looking at some resources and starting with Ansible or Puppet or Chef or whatever tool you think would be most beneficial to you and playing with it. Now, there are time constraints, there, there are other things that you have to think about, but I think a lot of times we sit back and we think somebody needs to come tell us or that we need permission. Um, and there are lots of things that you can do independently and then introduce into your environment um, and help people see the value because you can't, you can't always demonstrate the value just by telling people. They have to see it. I think that actually leads into a really good point. One of the key tenets of SRE is like automating yourself out of a job. Uh, and one of the things that's, kind of, uh, that's regularly said in our industry is like if you're going to do something manually five, more than five times, like you should be going and automating that. So. Um, Part of that is right, you'll do that process manually a couple of times, um, but you do need to start looking at it uh, to, for like you need to automate it at some point, uh, depending on your scale. Um, and you know, going and automating it, um, yeah, you, you don't need permission. Like it's you should take take the initiative because over time, as your business grows, um, that will pay off. Um, and you, you get that in a number of different ways. So you get lower toil, um, but you also get like a more predictable uh, network. Um, you know, you you can uh, not to sort of dive too deep, but you get like you can define what your network looks like intent-based networking, if you want to call it that. But you can define what your network. <laughs> network um, is code. Yeah. That's um, the other one. You define what your network. He's like. trying to. He's trying. He's trying. <laughs> he's trying to get the soapbox out. Intent-based. Um, like, you define what you want your devices to look like, and you know you have some guarantee that your network will be deployed in that way, um, and you know you don't end up with um, you know this one uh, interface that was configured slightly weird with a different MTU for whatever reason. Um, you know, <laughs> this this you is know a good point though. Like, I mean, like, I think this is one of those things for automation and we've talked about it on the show before, or I should say orchestration. Um, for automation and orchestration to really work well, you need to have uh, a very repeatable environment. Uh, and I think that's part of one of the barriers to entry for a lot of enterprises. So the fact that I was like, well, I've got, you know, 
20 years yeah, of legacy. Yeah. I don't oh, know yes. what I, this does. I, uh, I walked into a, into the network architect's office at a large, very large bank that everyone would recognize, and I, I won't give the name. And uh, you know, I said, so how's it going? And he said, it really stinks. My network is horrible. And I said, what's wrong? Like, not what you want to hear, right? And he said, I have every failed marketing attempt from my vendor deployed <laughs> in my network from the last 20 years, and there is no rational way for me to fix this other than ripping the entire network out and starting over. Right, and so I mean, that's a barrier, right? The, the barrier is, you know, okay, we're gonna start, our, you know, if I want to start automating or orchestrating configurations, like that's it. But I think, the, I think the real answer there is you don't have to start with configurations. You can start with pulling information. Um, yeah. And so, so the idea is, you know, it's not just about automating the configuration of a device. It's about getting out and getting information from it. And so, like, Yvonne talked about asking for permission. Uh, it's really not dangerous to go out and pull information from your device. It's probably one of the safest ways to get started in this, in this idea of, of, of using these programmatic just, just approaches. Just SNMP. Well, well I mean, <laughs> the other thing is, like, we have refresh cycles. I mean, and sometimes they're not what we want them to be. Sometimes they're five or ten years. But we also have code upgrades that have to be done. We have existing change windows. If, if you know where you want to go, you can get there incrementally by, by taking small steps along the way. So if you've got a big project to roll out something or you're refreshing your MPLS network or you're, you're doing a code upgrade across all of your switches, you can use that as an opportunity where you've got a change window to, hey, let's go ahead and standardize things like Interface descriptions. You know, I mean, it yeah. doesn't have to be. You, you can pick not. You can pick trivial things to start with, but I mean, I still. Or you know, your SNMP settings. Yes, your SNMP. <laughs> to make Russ happy. <laughs> now we're poking you from the other direction. <laughs> no, but uh, it's just you know, I guess that sounds great in theory. I think the problem and the challenge in this is that. When you, when you look at some of these things, it's not like, oh yeah, I'm gonna change this just because we haven't done it consistently. A lot of the time is, I am deathly afraid to change this because I don't know what it's doing. Yep. I mean, so I, working as a VAR, or working in a VAR and going in and consulting for, I, like I see this all the time. I'm like, what's this and what is it doing? And they're like, we have no idea. It's like, well, can we change it? No, because it does exactly what we needed to do. And so, I mean, all, all I'm saying is there's a lot of momentum and inertia going in a direction that's kind of counter to this, which I think is why we see web scalers um, because the value is they so is so high, well, it makes. But web scalers also do a lot more turnover. Like exactly. from, from a web scaler perspective, if I'm going to replace my data, if I'm going to build a data center, I'm only building a three to five year data center. Like how, and it's going to be gone. How old is like the oldest interface config that you have? In, in a web scaler, in a web scaler, in the across the entire environment, it's probably uh, uh, like two years, right? Like, yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah, right. Like I mean, that's that's how long that that port changes in two years. Right. Like there are ports on routers in the enterprise that have been the same configuration for the past I'm, fifteen. Oh, I know. Right. I know. When I was when I was What's in the longest device up time you've seen. No, we don't need to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. No, no. no I don't know. It's I double was, digits. Yeah. You know, <laughs> double digit years. Yes. Yeah. I used to get I used to get phone calls from people who had AT and T routers. Mm -hmm. I was like, what is an AT&T router? Oh, it's an, it's an AGS Plus that's been repainted to tan with an AT&T logo on it. And it's been running for even 10 years at that time. Right. And you're like, why are you still running? Because it's what we have and it works and it's good enough. And I think that 
that one of the differences with hyperscalers is not just, so people say it's all about because the hyperscaler makes money off their network. I think it's also an attitude that we embrace the change. It's okay. The change is gonna happen whether or not we like it. We either have two choices. We either embrace it or we fight it. And if we fight it, we're not going to end up winning that battle. So we might as well embrace it and get it over with. Going back to what Yvonne said earlier, like the hyperscalers are sort of like trailblazers for a number of different uh, initiatives. And you know, those companies will go and do the hard work um, to you know, scale their business because they have to, right? Um, and over time, um, you know, the IT industry will pick up these things and turn it into products or open source platforms, et cetera, that you know, smaller companies can use that have you know, a much lower amount of effort to go and implement. Um, so you know, some of the stuff we're talking about here is you know, hyperscalers have been doing it for a couple of years. It's sort of bleeding edge in industry. But you know, five years from now, you know, a lot of uh, you know, uh, switches, routers with APIs, streaming telemetry should be much more mainstream. And you know, those enterprise uh, companies that you know, are behind because of just the way that they operate, um, you know, they will catch up to some of this stuff. So I want to change topics a little bit and climb on one of my hobby horses. And that is silos and teams and organizational structure. Because the role that you describe when you're defining SRE sounds like this amalgam of every single enterprise team in IT. And, and so how do we get there and how do, how do you build these people and teams that are cross-functional enough to work in that kind of environment. And as a second part of that question, does this displace those teams, or is it something that you do in addition to those teams? So um, I think, I'll, uh, you, Jordan, your question I can easily answer quickly. So I don't think it displaces teams, I think it evolves teams. So if we go and look at um, like traditional sysadmins, um, most of that role has evolved into SRE, like we still need people to manage hardware policies, depending on where you are, those people still exist. But for a large part, that sysadmin role, that sort of I do it all role, has evolved into what we see as the SRE. For the actual like uh, cultural and silos part, um, a lot of it is company culture. Like um, it, as companies grow, um, like if you have silos, it makes R&D much, much more difficult. Like. Um, the old meme of you know developers uh, writing code instead of working my desktop and throwing it across the ops that that doesn't fly anymore, um, and it's really um, like there needs to be a partnership between those teams. So, like uh, for example, developers, engineers, they rely on me to help um, you know to get their infrastructure up and running to get their code deployed. Equally, I depend on sysadmins and I uh, depend on network engineers to build the underlying infrastructure that um, my stuff will run on. Um, so it's about breaking down those silos, um, definitely having bounds of responsibility. Um, and you know, one of the things that's really sort of pushed for that is uh, you know, blameless postmortems, um, where you know, we're not wait, trying to- Wait, wait, you need to say that again. So, <laughs> I, just, I just want you to say the phrase blameless. Blameless postmortems. And the concept behind that is that not necessarily like one person isn't to blame, but the fix process. Fix the problem. The Don't process fix is, the blame. Yeah, so fix the, the problem, not the blame. Yep. Did I do a short take on that recently? 
If I you did, we've not so. published it yet. No. Okay, okay, sorry. And if you've not, you need to. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, this to me, I mean, I don't know, like this to me, out of everything we've talked about, I think like blameless postmortem is like probably the most valuable thing that someone could take out of it because automation orchestration, all that will add value. Uh, right. Telemetry, that will add value. But the the politics and the organizational structure are the two things that I think are really what are holding enterprise customers back. Yeah, specifically. and like the the politics and the bureaucracy, that slows down development velocity at, at the end of right. the day and no one wins from that. And so SRE has been able to, you know, break down those silos um, and, you know, you have the culture, you have the concept of blameless postmortems. You also have the concept of measuring everything. So, you know, people are responsible for having a certain um, level of unit tests. They are responsible for having, you know, a number, like a certain percentage of deploys that are successful that don't need rollback. Um, you know, SREs are meant to measure everything and report that data up so you can see those, you know, breakdowns in execution if they do happen. And instead of sort of having, um, engineering and ops going, you know, back and forth on that, you know, that data is rolled up uh, to, uh, you know, people higher above where they can go and take, you know, the action that is required if there is a problem. Well, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the death of the network engineer's career or, or, you know, people are afraid their jobs are going to go away. But as I look at the world, if you, if you want job security, if you learn to work with these other teams of folks, you learn to work with your storage people and your virtualization people and your security people and your cloud people and, you know, who whoever you can get to work with you. Generally, in organizations I've been in, there's almost been an underground sub-team that's cross-disciplinary that are the people that get stuff done. And, and you can work in this, you know, sort of underground network of people that has no formal structure and no real acknowledged hierarchy, but those people can affect, go back to their own teams and affect change. Um, and you get to be a little subversive, which is kind of fun. You just scared every manager out there who's <laughs> listening, like every last one of them. Wait a minute, you mean there's teams that are functioning outside my control and my, my puppet strings? Like, like, but I mean, like that's really what SRE is, right? The yeah. idea is we're enabling and empowering groups of people who know how to get things done to get things done. Yeah. And then you're measured, right? And that's yeah. a big part of SRE, right? Is yeah. the measurement side of it, is to measure specifically the success or failure of how those yeah. things have happened. And so, you know, I think there, there's less management in the process maybe, like you have the engineers doing and getting it out, but then the results are what's being managed yeah. rather than the process. Yeah. Well, the other change that needs to happen is leadership needs to go from this command and control mentality to my job is to build a team that can function effectively together to get yes. things done. Yeah. Not, not I'm going to, I've got a bunch of people working on assembly line and I need to tell them where to put the widget and how quickly That's to right. put the widget there and, and when they can go to the bathroom. This is, this is a huge difference with quote unquote hyperscalers, with companies that rely on the network for their business model, is that most of the ones that I know of, although not always, some of them are starting to change now more towards command and control, Ex-technologists tend to be in control and in lead rather than ex-salesmen and ex-financial people for whatever reason, however that works organizationally. And so rather than saying, like at LinkedIn, rather than saying, you know, how much are we spending or what are we doing, we're more concerned about did that project get done, right? Yep. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of my opinion of you know, how we, how we see things, yeah. it's different. So going back to your first question, um, so in terms of like finding these people, um, SREs are generally 
hard to find because they are, you know, a very multidisciplinary role. But completely humbly said, of course, considering you are one of these people. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, like most of these people have traditional sysadmin backgrounds, no. and they've picked up other areas um, of, of knowledge. So um, they'll pick up a little bit of architecture. They'll pick up um, enough, you know, coding generally, like Python or Go or something, um, and they have a little bit of network just to get through. And so, yeah, who needs uh, that? Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> when you come to hire these people, like they have to be tested for all those skills. Right. Um, and what you really look for um, is, you know, people who are willing to continuously learn. Um, I think that's a really large yeah. part of the SRE. These people exist. I mean, they really do. I mean, so like, it's not. We're not talking about the mythical unicorn. There's nobody who's an expert in everything. Like that's just that's just it an unreasonable exist. expectation, right. right? But we call them T-shaped skills. Like you have a broad level of understanding of a lot of different things, and then a deep dive in one or two things. Yeah, right? like I think it's fair to say that SREs are sort of like a jack of all trades but a master of none, and that's sort of being frowned upon. But I think now um, you know businesses see the value of people who um, can do enough of everything and they have the people skills to work with someone who is the master. To lean on. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, if I really need something for the network, you know, I can go to Russ and say, hey, I need this yeah. um, as he is our master of networking. So um, that is... <laughs> is that your title? Master of networking? Dude, you That's have a great business card. I do. <laughs> um, and so SRE, you know, they have enough knowledge to do, uh, to do their operational tasks, but, you know, they also have the people skills to go and ask um, you know, those masters um, or know where to get that information if they need to. This is where my question was leading in the yeah. fact that SRE doesn't supplant other skills. What they no. are is they are kind of the glue that puts it all together. So the idea is like having a generalist who sits over the top who can speak the language of developers, who can speak the, the, the language of people operational infrastructure um, and, and be able to, to bring all that together and then ultimately be responsible for the success of rolling yeah. something out or the success of the operation of something is, yeah. is, is really the change. The change is adding another layer in there that bridges the gap between everybody. Yeah. Well, I think that the thing that we need to acknowledge is that that in and of itself is a skill. Yep. And, and, and a lot of times we have looked at that generalist overarching role um, and maybe this is just me, but but we have seen that 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 the real value is being really really deep and knowing one thing really really well. But I think the the way the world is evolving, that there's significant value in being able to um, stitch all those things together. And for the network engineer, and for the coder, and for the sysadmin, to be able to be on the edge as much as possible. Even if you have an SRA to work with, for the network engineer to understand the application side, to understand the coder, to understand the storage side, is actually a huge capability, even for the network engineer. I think you said that earlier, and I don't think we pay attention enough to that. I think we, we kind of gloss that over. Well, I'd rather have somebody who knows every bit in the OSPF bit field. Um, there's search engines for that. You don't need to know that. You don't need to memorize that. You need to understand the network and how it works and understand how it's going to converge. And as a network engineer, you then need to be able to understand how storage works well enough so if the SRE comes to you and says there's an interaction that I don't understand, you need to be able to work with the storage person in the SRE to make that understanding come about. And I think that's something we miss. So uh, in terms of um, you know finding these people, um, that skill set is, is hard and you are really looking for um, you know, people who are willing to continuously learn. Um, as John said, you know, nobody knows it all, um, but it 
the role is, you know, really continuously learning. And, you know, as we're sort of we're probably really close to, um, you know, an evolution in terms of everything becoming programmable in, in you know, the network uh, field, um, there will be a time where, you know, the network engineer needs to start continuously learning, understand how these APIs work, how this new infrastructure works, and how to put it all together. And, you know, that leads into things like infrastructure as code, et cetera. Right. I'd agree with that. I mean, we've had this conversation multiple times, and we're going to have it many, many, many times more over the course of the next few years. Right? Like, you don't need to be a programmer, but you need to understand how it works. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, you need to be able to stitch together yeah. some code and do something and hit an API and yeah. get some information or, you know. Like, by no means am I, uh, you know, a great enterprise uh, coder, uh, et cetera, but, you know, I have solid foundationals where I can write tools and platforms for the company right. that help accelerate our infrastructure. And if those tools become critically important and they need to be optimized like crazy, then you hand it off to the coder and say, this is what I wrote go to town and make it better, yep. right? Like do this in a way that's that's optimal rather than my hack of code or whatever. Yep. I'm sure your code isn't a no, hack, uh, I promise. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a, just on that, there's a good distinction is um, a part of you know SRE is sort of evolving away from you know one-off scripts, um, like bash scripts or mm -hmm. Python scripts, into actually building tools that right. people can reuse uh, and you know turning that into you know actual software. Because um, like, how many times have you downloaded a script from someone and you needed to actually install, you know, these five other things or change a firewall rule or whatever before it works? Um, SRE is about operationalizing a lot of those utilities yep. so everyone can benefit from it. That makes sense. So um, we've talked about the skills. We've talked about the politics. <laughs> um, I think I, I want to actually Yvonne brought up a point uh, specifically about the the value of a generalist. I think that the motivators there have been economic because generalists, I mean, I don't know about you guys' career, but right. I started as a generalist, right? Yep. Like I started with the ideas I came in. I did system yep. and, you know, I, I got introduced to network and I did support for end users and I did all that stuff. And the reality was is that like there was a very low ceiling <laughs> on what you were going to get paid to do that generalist role. And, and you were going to have to specialize in something if, if a company was going to see real value. And so you chose network engineering. I have a really funny story. It was actually between virtualization and networking. Like I was like, it was literally, I was between, I was looking for my next job and I'm like, it could go either it's, way. It's, so do, are you, or do you regret that decision at this point, Jordan? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, the, the funny part of the story, the funny part of the story is I actually, when I made that decision, I, I needed to specialize and I was going to go down one path or the other. I actually got hired as a virtualization engineer. So I, I thought that was the path I was going to go down. I was going to go do this thing and I was happy as could be. And then six months later at the place I was at, the lead network engineer quit. And they're like, oh, you know networking, right? And next thing you know, I'm just all in on networking. I guess it's like, okay, I thought I had it all figured out and I was going to go this way and here's this turn and, and this way and it's been that way ever since. Yeah. But Like I, when I was in, um, when I was in college, um, I got an opportunity to work for my university's IT department um, and my university was an ISP for 60,000-ish end users um, plus a number of different um, schools and universities. Um, and, you know, so I started, you know, learning about practical networking and I got to do, you know, 
everything from layer one issues up to you know building load balances and uh, server farms, etc. Yvonne's um, favorite is layer one, by the way. She just she loves cabling um, and patching. Like, but like what I found <laughs> stretch is, layer two. Stretch layer two. That's yeah. your second favorite. Is it's special stretch layer two. Well, one, one thing I one thing I found though. That's why Yvonne's sitting on the other side of the table here. <laughs> A bottle of water. <laughs> We're in the same physical space today, so I can actually hit you with it. One one thing I found is like when I was working in the data center, is I needed you know uh, I was doing a lot of interaction with um, the server engineers, uh, mostly Unix based people, and sort of um, you know I'd have to go back and forth on you know troubleshooting like port channels or VLANs or something. Um, and I found that I didn't really understand what happened on the other side. Like, how does your world work? How do you configure these things? And um, one of the engineers, um, Christian Unger, uh, like he spent a lot of time with me, sort of teaching me um, a lot of practical Unix. Um, you know, how to actually go and build these servers, how to go and configure these servers, and that gave me, you know, enough of a um, sort of pathway into going and exploring this stuff on my own, which sort of led to. Um, you know, me having my own small infrastructure at home where I could go and build and destroy, you know, DNS servers, DHCP servers, whatever, and sort of get to that um, point where I can do continuous self-learning. And so I don't think um, people are necessarily born uh, into a generalist role, but you know, um, you know, if you if you are a sysadmin, you can go and you know lean over to the other side um, of the aisle and you know talk to the networking people and understand how their stuff works. And they'll appreciate and, it. Yeah, again, Because like, you're trying, I mean, do, I, if, if a systems guy came to talk to me about networking, I would not be at all worried about like someone trying to take my job or something crazy like that. It would be like, this is this no, someone trying to learn something no, and inter no, interface it's, with it's me. It's okay, Hawaii sounds pretty nice if they took my job. So oh, why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, like the idea is, you know, like I don't know, like you said, you went to the server team and, and you had someone who was able to mentor you in just some basic yeah. Unix skills, and it's that curiosity. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll help anybody, like regardless of where they're coming from, if they're curious and they want to learn, and I can give them a piece of knowledge because that was me. Like that was yeah. me, like 10, 15, yeah. 20 yeah, years right. ago. You know, like that was yeah. that was me. Share your screen with me. Show me what you're doing. Yeah. Or and 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 problems are a great opportunity to do that. Um, if, if, if you can get the layer eight folks out of the way enough to like get on a call and share a screen and show me what you're seeing and help me understand and right. let's all look at a packet capture together. Yeah. Kind of a and thing. in the end, I think you find that that pays off. Like instead of having to bounce tickets between two teams, if you can do the extra five, ten percent and you know, find the issue instead of going to another team, um, the business ends up winning. Um, and I think that is one of the best things about SRE is you're able to you know, increase your velocity and value um, to the company. Uh, you know, the, yes, there does need to be a little bit of trust um, between teams. Um, and you know, especially with GDPR, things have to be a little bit more locked down now. But um, you know, having those trust between teams, because you know, in the end of the day, you should, should still have you know, accounting mechanisms for these devices. Um, but building building that trust and leaning over between teams, uh, you know, once you get through that initial learning curve, the the value will keep paying for itself. That absolutely goes back to the no blame post mortem. It I really mean, does. you you yeah. can't have trust between people if your department is penalized because you caused an outage. It yeah. it's it's because that fosters this finger pointing blame game yeah. where folks are just. 
that they're incentivized to do the yeah. wrong thing. And, and, and they're paralyzed. I mean, because it's so much easier. Yeah, you can't fail. Right. The idea is, right. you know, if, if I'm looking at something that has a 90% chance of being successful and a 10% chance of, of failing, but the success has a huge upside, but the failure also has a huge downside for me personally. Right. Even if there's some huge benefit for the like business. Like if it's going to affect my bonus. Right. And so, so this <laughs> idea of, you know, we, especially in the enterprise, because this is, this is really prevalent in the enterprise, but the, the idea of, you know, uh, we want to find out who it was because we want to make sure that it wasn't us and we want to make sure that the Meantime to innocence. Meantime to innocence. I, the fact that Greg's this is right, a marketing right. term, yeah, meantime <laughs> to innocence, absolutely speaks to the idea that this exists. And, and all of this stifles innovation. But right? this makes me think of something that I heard Matt Oswalt say. And he was talking about um, automation and DevOps and the, the topics that we're talking about today, that it's not just about doing your job faster. It's about being sure you never make the same mistake twice. Right. And so if you really want to be able to say, we can be sure this will never happen again, this is yeah. how you get there. Yeah. But you have to innovate and change yeah. to do it. Like if you look at code, you know, continuous integration is now something that's in, uh, expected, you know, everywhere basically. Like you have to run unit tests, you have to have a version deployable. Um, and I think we'll get to the point where the network will also be, you know, we can do continuous integration, we can, you know, run models. Um, like there's a, num a number of, you know, intent-based networking products out there where you can go and run models and make sure that the network will behave um, as you expect. Um, and like one thing that postmortems should always uh, you know, ensure um, is that we understand what happens and we have ways to prevent this from happening again. Um, and it, like if you don't don't have that outcome, then why are you doing postmortems? Uh, like everyone loses. Well, otherwise. because because if we don't figure out who's wrong, we can make sure that we're not the one being blamed. That's right. Mean, meantime, innocence. Yeah, it's just, I just got to prove I'm right. I don't care about. No, you just have to prove you're not wrong. You don't that's even right. really have to prove that's you're right. right. I, have to, I have to prove I'm not wrong. And you can't be wrong if you don't do anything. <laughs> we need to rope this back in. <laughs> you just about hit my button. <laughs> but you hit it. I just sort of hit the release valve. <laughs> I mean this this is I mean this is the challenge, right? The the challenge here isn't I mean technically we've moved ahead. Um, the, 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 the technology is there. The yeah, problem the, is the culture. The technology or technological capacity is there. Yep. We've seen it demonstrated. Yep. The value is there. Um, but the problem the is... The tools are being built. They're open. The tools are being built and open source. They're available. There are ways of doing this stuff, but the right. culture has to be changed. But you know, for, for you to be able to move rapidly, and again, it's not just about this moving is, rapidly, but to be able to move rapidly, we have to be able to... Yeah. stumble a little bit along the way to get there yeah. and that's just like how many of us have fat fingered CLIs and you know taken down something I definitely have a number of times ask. when I was working on networks a long yeah. time ago and you know one of the things about SRE is creating processes tools platforms to prevent against this so this does not happen right um, and that is what helps drive your um, innovation um, and you know you don't need these you know change windows once a week to go and make your changes because you know that when you go and deploy something it will f for work for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what does it says on the back of your laptop there? 
Yvonne, right, culture where? eats technology for breakfast. Yeah, I wonder who gave me that sticker. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, it's, 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 it's true. true. It's really true. Well, I mean, you look at the you look at the organizations organizations that are successful, and it's a combination of of you know this this idea of being able to innovate and move forward and not be stuck in politics and process. It's yeah. the people who are succeeding, right? And, exactly. and so, for listeners, if you lead people and if you manage people then you got to figure out how to get your people to work together. And if you are the people, then just start making friends like and, and working uh, with people. Yes, when I was in Cisco Tech, I used to have a candy drawer on my desk. I have made more cheesecakes than I That's, can count. Exactly. Like, it's exactly. amazing what cheesecake will exactly. do for team culture. Yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a candy drawer on my desk because... <laughs> I wanted people who were senior to me to walk by and grab a piece of candy and I could say hi to them and then I knew who they were. And then if I was in TAC working a case and I had no idea what I was doing, I could say, you came by and get candy the other day, now you get to help me with this case. <laughs> I gave you a piece of candy, now you get roped into this four hour support. Exactly right. <laughs> Somebody like, made a bad I am trade. never taking candy <laughs> from us again. again. <laughs> but it worked, it was great because I knew everybody at TAC and I could actually call on people. So, yeah. I, you know, I it's, think it's... I don't know that it's directly related to SRE, but I think it's just in general. Like, your network is so important. And so, whether that network is the people you have at work or the people you have outside yeah. of work that you can call on, right, right. it is so critically important. Yeah. Like, one of LinkedIn's core values is relationships matters. And I think that, it, uh, like, as a company, that really matters to us. But, like, in SRE, that is as important in, as any technical skill I have. Because I, I know I don't have all the answers, but I need to be able to work with someone who does. Right. Um, and, you know, definitely going back to what you said, you know, I have people in the network team, I have the people in our systems team, I have people in our storage team and our database team that, you know, I've built those relationships with and, you know, if I need something sort of uh, quickly, I can go to them and, you know, they know that um, if they need something from me, you know, I'll be there to help them as well. Excellent. Well, I think this is a good point to, uh, to wrap up. This, uh, this episode, Michael, is there a place where people can find you online? Yep, so you can uh, find me at LinkedIn um, at slash in slash Michael K. Keogh. Um, you have to say that, right? You're, like you're contractually <laughs> no, obligated? No, not at all. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Matrix Tech, M-A-T-R-A-X-T-E-K, and also my blog is michael-keogh.io. Awesome. Yvonne. Where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at Sharp Network. And if you're in Las Vegas, yes, right I'm now. here. In all, although this will <laughs> by the time be, this comes done. out, they're not going to yeah, be. People are going to so. be wandering around Las Vegas looking for you, <laughs> like next week. Yeah, Yvonne, sorry, Yvonne. I won't be here. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network or on the blog at esharp.net, LinkedIn, and of course, Network Collective. All the time. Russ. And Russ is always at rule11.tech and the Network Collective. And, you can, and, and Twitter, on Twitter. And on Twitter. Every now and again, I log in and, yeah. and give people heart attacks. I, it was just, the, yeah, like we all panicked because <laughs> it just showed up in our tweeted feed. tweeted two weeks ago. <laughs> I know. And we noticed. <laughs> we got the alert. <laughs> so I'm Jordan Martin. I can be found at my blog occasionally, jordanmartin.net, more likely here at Network Collective. Uh, also, Network Collective, if you like this episode, we have lots more content just like it. The Network collective.com at net collective pc on twitter uh, and just about everywhere else so yeah uh, thanks for watching and we'll see you next time